This episode is a mic swap. It's a concept I came up with back in 2017 at the very start of Shareable. I thought, what if I shared the mic and let my guests become the host and I became the guest of my own show? This simple swap has allowed my guest hosts to take the conversation in unique and unexpected directions, producing some amazing one-of-a-kind conversations that I never could have planned. The concept is so good, in fact, that plenty of my podcaster friends have taken the idea for themselves. So I hope you enjoy this episode of Mike Swap. Hi, everybody. I'm Leilani Manulu. I'm the host of the Shareable Podcast, and I'm here with the fantastic Jeff Gibbard. Hello, Jeff. Thank you Hello. for coming. Thank you thank for you having me on the show. Thank you and welcome. So, Jeff, you have been creating a splash with your book, The Lovable Leader. Tell me a little bit, what are the main takeaways that you want people to, to take away from your, your beautiful writing? So it's interesting. I've recently been recording the audiobook. So I've been going through it and actually reading through my own book, which is not something that like authors typically do all that often. Like mm -hmm. you you wrote it and then maybe you read it after the fact, but like you don't go back through it time and time again. And what's interesting is that um I'm really struck by how all of us change over time and our even our perception of the thoughts that we had from years ago may be different, right? So I say all of that to say that as I was reading through my book, the things that I thought were important as I was writing it initially are not the things that I currently think are quite as important. And what really stands out for me now is um, so much of the original book was about sort of an antidote to bad bosses. And it was, it was very behaviorally uh, oriented. It was like, it was kind of like a what to do manual. It was like, if you're a brand new manager, here's some things to do that are very effective frameworks. It was, uh, you know, very tactical. And I think what's really emerged for me as time has passed and I've thought about the book and I've read through it and I've thought about the parts that to me are awesome and the parts that might be a little cringe now and all of the spectrum in between is that um, I'm really struck by how how we lead is the important part, that the the method by which we communicate, the method by which we set goals and plan and all that, that's the important part. And that when we try to isolate where that impulse comes from, that drives our how, it comes from different places in people. And kind of unintentionally, I, I came back around to why the book is the lovable leaders that I think that really great leaders, they lead from a place that is, is centrally located in a true, authentic, genuine care for people. And it is not coming from a place of fear. So I, the original book, and, the, and that's a key distinction. The original book was about how people lead with fear, not necessarily how they lead from fear. And I think what I learned from my own book in going through it and reading it and thinking about it was that I think a lot of the reason why bad bosses lead from fear, lead, lead with fear is because they lead from fear. They are scared. They are in a culture where they feel like they don't have enough, where they feel like if they don't control people under them, that they're going to lose compliance. They're going to lose the respect that they deserve because of their title. And so they're not going to be able to produce the results. They're not going to be a great leader because they're not going to produce what people are expecting them to, but that what great leaders really do is they think about how they interact with people and how they go about doing what they do. And they're not coming from a place of fear. They're coming from a place of care. They actually genuinely want to see the people in on their teams grow. So I've got frameworks throughout the book, and I still think that the three most important pillars of lovable leadership are care, trust, and safe travels. So that's 
that's been the dominant kind of like takeaway of the book, I guess. But what I'm getting from my book and where I really want to take the content from my book is talking about how we can identify the situations we're in to acknowledge the things that cause us to be fearful and confront them courageously so that we can instead lead from a place of love and care. That's so beautiful. And I, I understand care and trust. Tell us what safe travels means. So safe travels is my clever way of combining two ideas into one, which is that, um, you know, I didn't want to have four pillars. I want to have three, but I did think that these two work so beautifully together that they could just be one. So a leader's job is to go somewhere. You're, you can't really be a leader if you stay in one place. Um, I mean, I guess there's situations, but generally speaking, point A to point B, you're leading someone to a place, but it's not enough to just get people from one place to another. You actually have to ensure that they are safe along the way. The example I always give is like, it's not enough to get in a plane uh, in, you know, at Newark airport flying to LA if the door is going to open up at 35,000 feet. Like that's not safe travels. Like you're not getting from point A to point B there. Some people are flying out that door. So you want to make sure that people have um, the safety and security to feel comfortable pursuing that goal without concern. So you need to make sure that if you're setting a destination that people know they're safe to pursue it. That means the freedom to make mistakes without feeling like mistakes are going to be punishable by some, you know, unretrievable uh, circumstances. Oh, so good. It's so good. Um and clever to, to use safe travels as, as a single pillar. I'm curious then how has, Oh, this is an interesting question that's coming through. How has writing the lovable leader and this work that you do in leadership, how has that contributed to your ability to be a father and a spouse? I'd say one big thing that really strikes me is that there's a real difference between leadership and management. And I wrote the book for managers um, primarily because that was that was who I was speaking to at the time that I was writing. It was people who were new to management and I wanted them to be better leaders. And I think what I've learned partly as being a parent, but also partly the work of the lovable leader um, and talking about it um, and coaching and those things is that it's a lot easier to make a, ma a, a really good manager into a really great leader than it is to make a really great leader into a really great manager because they're fundamentally different skill sets. And I think everyone has access to leadership skills, but not everyone has access to management skills. And I think as a parent, I'm learning that um, in our home, what really drives everything is that we have a village. Like in the background right now, you may or may not be able to even hear it, but like there's my wife's aunt, there's my wife's mom, and they're here all the time helping us. And then there's my wife and all that she does and there's so much logistic and 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 just stuff that has to happen that I do a lot of, mind you. But like, I'm not the manager coordinator. I don't make the decisions on when feeding time and nap time is. I just follow the rules, right? But when it comes to being a leader in terms of like, um, you know, how we raise our children, I'm very active in that part, like setting the direction of how we encourage them how we manage conflict, how we get them to go back to sleep sometimes, things like that, how we talk about managing their fear when they're about to get a shot at the doctor or something. Those are areas where I step as a step up as a leader. And in the same way that I advocate in my book, Care, Trust, and Safe Travels, 
my job as a father is to make sure that my kids always know that I care about them and that I care about their mother and that I care about our house uh, and, and just our home in general and that they can trust me. I always want them to know that they can trust me, that they can come to me with their deepest fears with, it doesn't matter what it is that whether it can be silly or whether it can be serious, that they have the ability to come to me. And then the same way, I'm going to always encourage them to pursue big goals. I'm going to be pushing them and encouraging them to be a superhero. Like I have a superhero training manual manual for these kids of like how they will grow up to be extraordinary individuals, but it's safe for them to do that. And it's also safe for them not to do that. Right? Like I have my ambition for them and I'm going to put things, you know, in front of them to, to pursue and I'm going to encourage them, but I'm going to let them know that it's safe for them to fail at it. Um, and I keep that in my mind at all times that those are my responsibilities as a father. Um, and the places where I, you know, um, wherever I get down on myself about it or the places where I'm not living up to those three pillars. Mm. So I, I know just by knowing you that, I mean, everything that you've described in your book and just how I know you navigate like your family life. And I know that you have this like core of, of empathy, like this very human centered approach and how you move through your life. So what would you tell I don't know the, the re I'm not sure why this is coming through, but like white cis heterosexual men who want to embody more of that, but don't know how, because of the conditioning, like, what would you tell them? Um, I guess I would first say that all of those categories probably not serving you. Um, you know, you, in the back of your mind, you might think those things protect you, but, uh, or that they make you part of some in-group, but I guess I would just encourage you to imagine that none of that actually matters. And what matters is that you're part of team human. Um, so all of the privileges that that affords you, I would, you know, a lot of people have trouble with the word privilege or the idea of it. I would just encourage like looking for where you get additional benefits that others might not have and see if you can work to try and dismantle those systems so that everybody gets to have it. Um, but I don't know, like it's tough because like, I don't know, I have a particular like, neurodivergent sensitivity to injustice. So for me, like, and, and also feeling excluded throughout a lot of my life, um, I'm just particularly sensitive to it. Um, very well aware of like the, the opportunities and lack of barriers I've had throughout my life. And I don't know necessarily how to communicate that to other people. I don't necessarily know how to get people to open up their mind to it. Um, I guess I would just, you know, I would encourage people to maybe go through like the, uh, the exercise of the veil of ignorance. I don't know if you ever heard of that, but like the idea of like, imagine a society, imagine any society, however you want, and then picture that you could occupy any position in that society from like the very top of the society to the very bottom of the society. How would you structure society? And if people looked at the society we had now and could imagine that at any given point, you know, the, the roles of things all moved around and you could inhabit the lowest rung of society. How would you change society? And I don't know. I just, I tend to think of all people, they should have the freedom to be able to express themselves exactly as they are. So if you are, let's say a cisgendered white heterosexual male, those are all you that I, you identify with that. You feel like that is you. Then I guess I would just say, why do you have the freedom to be all of those things, to choose all of those things, or to have been born into those things? And other people don't have the same freedom. Why shouldn't they? And I don't know. I, I guess it's tough because I think a lot of those rules come from elsewhere and some people adhere to them. And I don't, I don't have any of those rules that I adhere to. So um, 
I guess I don't know how I would tell someone to read, <laughs> read a lot of books. That's it. Read a lot well, of books. I mean, it, it sounds to me like the way that you do that is by embodying that energy. Like you're not going to go and tell somebody how, how to like move, move forward, but you're going to embody that in your family and the work that you do. And so I think that that's powerful to be able to, to do that. Um, I also would say like, I don't know if I'm the best person for that role in the revolution. I was talking with a friend of mine about this lately. Like there's different people that play different roles, right? Like some people are very like active they're organizers. Some people are really good at like having conversations with people from like the other side. And then other people are really good about like being like academics and like thinking Mm -hmm. through things and solving complex challenges, whatever. Like, I just know that I don't have as much as I like preach empathy and I I talk about being compassionate, I, my line, my fuse is very short for it. Like I just, if I meet someone who's resistant to the idea that like everybody should just be free to be who they are, like in in, across all categories, then like, there's just a point, like, I'm not going to convince you, like, you're just go talk to someone else who's better, who has more resilience for that conversation. Cause I don't like, and so I don't play that part in the revolution. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I just, I try to be me. I try to be kind. I try to get better. I try to acknowledge where I screw up and I try to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I'm, I'm not that dude to like go and and help other people be better, except if maybe by chance they see me behave a certain way and they're like, they, it opens a question for them. If I do that, then I'm like, it's more than I, I would give myself credit for being able to actually do. Yeah. But that's like such powerful self-awareness too, because I, I had that realization at one point and I can't remember the framework, but it there's, there's a framework out there and I might be able to isolate it and send it to you, but basically talks about all of the different roles within the revolution. Right. And like, I am not an organizer. I am not, I'm not the person with, you know, the, what's it called? Like in the front, that's like leading it. That is not me. I'm the storyteller, right? This is back yeah. to Andor. Like everybody's it's, got a role. We need Andor. We need yeah. Andor. And I'm I'm the person that's observing and telling the story, right? I'm the person that is um, holding space for those who are exhausted in the back. Like I, it, it's it's just so interesting um, to yeah. Thank you for like bringing that up. And I'll ask one last question because you know that I'm a shaman and intuitive. So I'm curious, just in this moment, as you connect with your body and your intuition, what is the message that needs to be heard by everybody in this moment? Tell the people close to you that you love them while they're here. Uh, Mm -hmm. I recently lost my father and I spent a lot of time with him and I told him that I loved him. He told me they love me. There was just, there was a lot there, but there's never enough time. There's never... As much as I called him, I could have called him more. As much as I video chatted him, I could have done it more. As much as I went over to their place when they were in Philly, I could have done it more. And um, that's been with me my whole life. Uh, a wise person once said, what's always been true for you? you know. And throughout my entire life, I've been keenly aware of the impermanence of our existence. My dad was a funeral director, and I first became aware of the concept of death when I was like three or four uh, I remember very traumatically watching TV in my room. I was three, four, five years old, and I was watching Superman and Krypton blew up. And I had this realization, oh, crap, everybody on Krypton died. People are going to die. My dad's going to die one day. People die. And I remember that was like the end of an era of childhood. And it was traumatic for me. And I became very aware of that. And then 
in high school, I had this point in my life where I was really depressed. And uh, then I watched Dead Poets Society and I was like, well, the message of that was like, seize the day because you never know when you're going to be gone. And then on my last day of high school, my mom almost died in a car crash and I almost lost her. So I have all of these points of evidence throughout my life that keep proving to me that you don't know how much time you have and you don't know when your last day with someone else is going to be. So the the one message that has just been so present for me, especially since he passed, is just you don't know how much time you have with people. You don't know how much time you have here. So tell the people that are close to you how much they matter to you and do it frequently because you never know when that last conversation happened. So I know we're coming up on time, but I feel really called to ask, are you open to hearing like a little message from your dad right now? Because I am a channel. I will hear it out, but I will say it's not typically my thing, Okay. but I love you and respect you. So uh, for that reason, I want it to be there for you and for anybody else that's listening. So the only thing that I keep hearing is make sure he knows how proud I am. That's a true statement. That's that's what on. I keep. He he's like he needs to know how proud I am of him, and and how you parent and how you lead and how you are a husband and just the man that you are. That's what I'm hearing. That's spot on. Um. Yeah. Well, this was a beautiful conversation. I'm so grateful to have you on the show. And for those that are listening, thank you for being a listener and a part of the shareable. No, I messed it up. <laughs> what you did didn't you miss say? anything up. You didn't miss anything up. No, you did a wonderful job because what you did was is that you took over the show. You gave us a great episode that could only be described in one word, one word only. And what would you say that word is? This episode is shareable. So tell me, what was most valuable or useful for you in this episode? Send me a message or hit me up on social media. I'm easy to find, but there's links in the show notes just to make it easy. Seriously, I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple things you could do, starting with subscribing to the show. And after that, head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate the show five stars and leave a review. Consider sharing this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. Or just buy me a latte or an old-fashioned by hitting up that tip jar. If you're looking for a good book to read, may I suggest The Lovable Leader, which covers how to build great teams with trust, respect, and kindness. It's built exclusively for brand new managers, and it's a handbook that will serve you well in your journey of leadership. Just search for Lovable Leader wherever books are sold online. And finally, if you're interested in working with me or checking out any of my other projects, go to jgibbard.com. That link, as well as every other link mentioned, will be found in the show notes. Stay safe, be kind, and seriously, share this episode with someone. I'll see you on the next episode of Shareable. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm.